The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. So tonight we're covering chapter 13, and... I think, looking back over this book, that chapter 13 might be the most important chapter in the whole book. Because what, he, what, what, what the authors get into in this chapter is to take all of the things that we've been learning along the way about the way that honor culture works, about the way that shame culture works, and the nuances of those cultures. And they say, look at the ways that all of these things are a part of the concept of a communal culture, right? And which is which, which, of course, makes perfect sense because it's about misreading through individualist eyes, not through, uh, you know, not not through a, a communal culture's uh, way of seeing the world. But it's it, it's in this chapter, it's as though they say, look at the way that all of these things that we've been looking at the whole time begin to play together. Which, of course, is what the next few chapters are going to be about. They're going to be looking at those things and saying, so how does this? How does this new way of seeing scripture help us in our own individualist culture to read scripture more fully? Um, and they're going to give some more like concrete tools for doing that rather than just explaining how that culture works. They're going to say, so let's move on to applying what we've learned. But this chapter is an excellent example of what it looks like when we apply those principles to this. And so I left the picture up on the board from, from last time. We're talking about boundaries. We're talking about identity because that's really what's, what, what's at stake in, in this boundary discussion. The, the use of the tools of shame and the use of the tools of honor and all of the, the, the ways that those work are always about establishing who we are, this collective identity. We belong to each other. We belong to the group. It's, it, it, it's always a, a larger focus than just simply what do my actions entail, but rather what does it look like for us to be us? How do we make sure that there is integrity within the, the group that we belong to? How do we understand that? And so it's always going to be this constant movement of values and boundaries and identity because all of those things depend on each other. Just like you can't separate honor and shame, not in the sense, like we've said before, that they're, they're not equal and opposite sides of a coin. They're two separate tools, but you can't separate them because they're doing the same thing. And that's always reinforcing and enforcing the culture's values. And those, those reinforcing and enforcing are, are really like establishing those boundaries, what this, what, what this chapter and the, the chapter before it were all about. So what the, what the book is talking about is specifically that. It's saying, what does it look like for, uh, for us as an individualist to read accounts of people's interaction with God, knowing that they're speaking to us with, uh, with, with stories and images and perspectives 
that are completely foreign to our experience. And yet, how do we, in our own context, see what they're saying, hear what they're saying, receive that, and say, what does this tell us about who God is? What does this tell us about what God's salvation is doing and what it's accomplishing? And what I love in this chapter is that they start doing that. They start saying, look at the way that this pushes our attention back to key points, key things that we need to understand about who God is, whether we are in an individualist culture or a collectivist culture or wherever we happen uh, to find ourselves. So the question that I had before we dive in is, what, is it, what do you think it looks like for you specifically, because of course we're individualists, what does it look like for you to have your values shape your identity? What are some like examples that you could think of, ways that your values, the things that are important to you, the, the virtues that you uphold, the, um, the, the goals that you are working toward, that you are uh, sort of angling your life toward, the ends that you're directing yourself to, how, how do those things shape your identity? Well, as a more superficial example, um, I am coming more and more to the realization that, you know, not just that physical health is important, but that it should be acted on. Mm -hmm. And so I go to the gym as part of that, mm -hmm. which, you know, time and time again in the past few years, my brother has called me the gym guy, the strong man, the power lifter, the weight lifter, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. So it's... Yeah, no, that I think that's, you know, like I said, a superficial example, but mm -hmm. an example. Mm -hmm. I kind of wondered as as I was thinking about it this week of the <laughs> the sort of American. I I assume at least that it's an American adage of "fake it till you make it." Like there's this there, there's this notion almost that we have that like there's this goal, this imaginary me that exists out in the future, and I just need to. Um, you know, uh, you hear people talking about like storyboarding their lives or, vision or boarding. vision boarding themselves, right? They've got or a whiteboard where they, or they manifest it, right? You, uh, you know, my, my, my grandpa, when he was teaching me how to golf, he, he was, uh, he, he showed me, you know, like all the basics of, of, you know, this is the way that you, you, you hold the, you, you hold the, the, the golf and this is the way that you swing and you're, you know, you have to angle your arms and you have to relax your knees and all of these. He's like, but I can teach you how to swing. But what you have to do is you have to stand back for a second and you just have to look at the ball and you just have to imagine where the ball is going to go. It was this like weird Zen moment with my grandpa who's, you know, like, a, you know, he's a Korean war vet. He was a firefighter for, you know, decades and decades, it's, you know, always kind of kind of gruff a little bit, you know, really dry humor. And he's he's waxing philosophical about like you have to envision where's the ball going and you just have to be one with the golf ball. Let that happen. And then you take your club and you just you, you just remember, hold it in your mind's eye, take a deep breath and relax, and then wind up and just swing. And he's like, I was like, okay, if that's what then that's what we'll do. But it was this weird, it's that kind of thing. Like I know that happened and you know, I, I'm sure that that came out of like the business community in the 80s that, that he was, you know, that he was working in. Because it cut but that I feel like it still carries over even to today. You hear people talk about, you know, the vision boards and the things that they have. They're like, I'm going to write it down and then it's going to become my reality. I hear my values. I'm going to live toward them. Even if it's not true yet, that's the way I'm headed. It reminds me of this video I saw, this um, ex-New Age person mm -hmm. uh, 
talking about one aspect of New Age that she held on to for a very long time and was had a very not because she wanted to, she just had a hard time letting it go. And she called it the law of attraction. Oh, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that they really push and they try to use quite a few of them will try to use, you know, verses from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Say basically if like affects like put positive energy out, you get positive back stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So that's like the I guess the new agey equivalent of that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that there's there, there's um this there's a lot of that in in kind of yeah. the culture that we live in. Well, and like the Christian heretic version of that is name it and claim it. Mhm. Mhm. It, it because it, it, at the end of the day it's saying the same thing, right? You know, you can you can think about it hard enough, or you can will it hard enough, or you pray about it hard enough, and all of those words are kind of interchangeable. At the end of the day, I think that goes back to just people wanting to desperately <clears throat> believe that they ultimately have control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what it is. So the first part of this chapter ta- is is him talking about First Corinthians, and I I want to talk about First Corinthians, especially since we spent time talking about it on Sunday. I want to spend some time talking about it tonight, but I want to come back to it after we've looked at some of the other examples in the chapter, okay? So the first thing they talk about is enforcing values by guarding boundaries, okay? And the phrase, at least in this chunk of the chapter that they come back to again and again in, in the Jewish world is casting off the yoke. And what I thought was so helpful here is that when we use that metaphor of yep. like, removing the yoke for us it's always about freedom right if you get rid of your yoke it's as though you've gotten rid of your chains but of course so jess and i are gigantic nerds i know that's shocking information for you guys but there are uh, there's a series of these uh these the documentary docu-series on i think they're all on prime now uh where cultural archaeologists go and they live on uh on on a a particular time period like living history farm and they do all of the things that they're that that they're doing exactly the way they would in victorian england and uh edwardian england and uh you know wartime and world war ii and they so they just they they live this but what was fascinating was in in one of these series they were learning how to how to plow using animals and they had two horses that were pulling the plow and Two things, right? The the one is that when you put the the horses into um, into the yoke, the way that they yoke the horses together in their harnesses, they don't pull the plow; they push it, because all of the weight is against their chest. So as they walk, they're actually pushing the weight forward. It just happens that, but that's the way that they're designed. And I thought, just from a physics point of view, I thought that was that was a fascinating way of thinking about it. Like the, the horses are using completely different muscles than you think about like dragging something behind you. But the other thing was like they had to learn how to use commands with these two horses because they were yoked together. Because the yoke itself was the tool that enabled this to be the kind of farm implement that would work correctly. If it was one horse the the plow wouldn't pull in in the correct direction it had because of the ways that there there's there's incredible physics to do with plows that i also hadn't realized until you watch somebody from you know from the year 2000 trying to learn how to plow a field somewhere in england and they're like this isn't working and it's you know it's, it's a mess 
like, oh no, there's there's this incredible science behind it that has just been lost to time, uh, you know, more than anything. But this idea that the the yoke itself is a tool that binds us together, that makes us a community, that enables us to work side by side. And that image, because for us, I think in, in the West, whenever I hear that word yoke, I immediately think about chains. But it's not about chains. It's about a tool that binds us together, right? And when and so this idea, exactly, like this makes us work together better. Well, the horses this is are kind of in control. The, they, they don't have to follow those demands, right? The, the <laughs> horses are learning how to work together. They're learning how you know it's it's this this whole team effort. What that what was what was fascinating to me was to hear them use that phrase casting off the yoke, and in in my own Western perspective. That seems like a positive phrase. And as soon as they said, the yoke is something that keeps us together. It's something that, that makes us one. It's, it's the tool that helps us be one, one people together. I was like, oh, so this is, it, it's a completely negative idea. And so that's what they, they, they grab a hold of that and they, they use that as the image throughout the rest of the chapter. This idea of what is happening here that looks like casting off the yoke or choosing to not cast off the yoke. And so that shows up again and again. The first example that they have is from, is, is from Numbers. And so this is in, in Numbers 25. And at this point, there's been this ongoing war between Moab and, uh, and, and uh, the, the Israelites. And there has been like a stalemate almost between the two of them. And what the Moabites have realized is that they can... They can get the Israelites to stop fighting them by marrying into the Israelite communities. And when they do that, they typically bring their gods with them. And so there has been this, this influx of, of, of Moabites bringing the, the, the Baals, the Canaanite religion into, uh, into this area to the point that it is, it's not just one tribe in Israel where this is happening, but it's happening everywhere all over uh the, the 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 people are turning away from the worship of Yahweh and they're turning back to uh to toward these these Canaanite gods and so God calls Moses and tells him that he is going to have to take the people who have become idolaters and kill them on, on the 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 outskirts of of the of the village and so he gathers them all together, and and this is if you remember our our model that we have of the uh, of, of the the holy of holies. So they're standing just outside the 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 tent of meeting, and Moses is delivering this address, and Numbers tries desperately to explain to us what is happening without ever actually saying what is happening. But what happens is that there is an Israelite man and a Moabite woman who go inside the tent so that they're out of view so that they can be together. So, and if we're reading it quickly, we don't notice that what that means is the only tent that's nearby is the tabernacle. So they go into the tabernacle and Phineas sees them go in there. Now, this is what's interesting here. The authors don't point this out, but I think that this is important because if you read the chapter, here's what it says. It says that the young man, it gives his name, but I don't remember it. And I'm not going to look it up because it'll slow us down. Yeah. But the, the young man is the son of one of the chiefs of the, the tribe of Simeon. 
and the young woman is the daughter of one of the chiefs in the Moabite tribes. And the person who sees them is Phineas, who is the son of one of the chiefs in the Levite camp. So this isn't the rulers who are doing this. This isn't even the second tier rulers. These are the third tier kids that are, that, that are interacting. And so two of them have gone inside the Holy of Holies, and the other one sees them go in there, knows what's happening, grabs a spear, and Numbers, being Numbers, tries to tell us very genteely that he killed them both with one spear thrust so that we know exactly what it was they were doing inside the tent of meeting. But what's fascinating in the book is that when he says that, the 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 accolades that happen in the book happen toward Phineas. Now, you wouldn't expect somebody who goes inside the Holy of Holies and murders his neighbor to, to, to get an applause, right? You wouldn't anticipate that. And yet, what happens? That. Why? Because he's violating the community boundary marker that he turns to those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was violating the community boundary mark. He was violating the, communi- the, the, the boundary marker for God and God's people. And he was violating the, the covenant that God had made. Uh, <clears throat> so so there is, there's the, the boundary marker of group identity, right, that's being violated. But then there's a boundary marker of tribal uh, relations. So he's, so he's transgressed national boundaries. He's transgressed family boundaries because his family's not permitted inside that tent. The the Simeonites are not. Only the the um, Levites. the Levites are allowed in there. And so it's one of the Levites who is from that same generation who follows him inside there and finds him not just violating all of these group identity markers, but now he's also violating the oath that his people have made with God. Isn't Phineas uh, Aaron's grandson? Yes, yeah. uh-huh. yeah, Aaron's think, grandson. And he gets rewarded by God going, no, it's through that line that the high priest will go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kermit the Frog sipped his tea and moved on. Yeah, the word that, that Scripture uses to describe that is zeal, which, of course can can lead to good and to bad things, right? Which we we see later on because it's exactly the same word that that Luke is going to use when he describes what Paul is doing, what Saul is doing, that he's filled with zeal uh and and it leads to him placing himself in op- he, in in his zeal for God's name, he puts himself in opposition to the gospel. Well, and uh, the zealots mm-hmm. who are ultimately uh responsible for the for the, for the of, uh, for the destruction of the temple and the the end of of israel of as israel a, as, even as a even as a uh tributary nation mm-hmm. it's like the romans got tired of all the rebellion mm-hmm. and did what romans do mm-hmm. and it's like they could have just not been trying to murder all the romans and right then yeah the final utter ultimate diaspora <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, so the chapter moves on then to talk about uh, Paul in his interaction with the synagogues. And again, he, the, what, what the authors do is they point out something that I don't think I had ever paid attention to in, in my own readings. And that's that Paul, when he's describing his own missionary work, he says that 
five times I have I, I have been beaten publicly for the sake of the gospel by the by the Sanhedrin, and we hear that. And my own gut reaction is um, that that well, you know, obviously this is just an example of you know of of the the false worship of of Judaism, right? That they they hear the gospel and their response is to just do violence to people. But what they point out is that it is that the 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 receiving of the beating is not something that's imposed. It's something that is received. So the the restriction that is laid out by the um by the 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 people in the synagogue by the leadership in the synagogue is you have transgressed <laughs> some kind of boundary and usually at least in Paul's case it's he's proclaiming that Jesus himself is God and they say and and so they say to be restored to community you you have to undergo a beating and so Paul says I have been beaten that way five times for Paul the beating is one. Obviously, it's a mark of of, of his love for Jesus. But I, I think for us as individuals, we think, "Wow, look at how zealous Paul was for the gospel." But it wasn't that Paul was zealous for the gospel. It's that he was zealous for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Like that for him, that was the price of content. Because once that had been received, you were restored to the community. That was the the purpose of it. It was like, oh well, you took your licks. And now you're welcome back. So he can continue the proclamation of the gospel because he has undergone these things. That it's a display of his commitment to Jesus and a display of his love for his neighbors. That this is the price that Paul says I was willing to pay in order to continue to proclaim the gospel in the synagogues. To continue to proclaim the gospel to the, the people in these, uh, in, in these communities. These people that, I, that I, I love and I care about. But of course then... Oh, you were about to say something. Oh, just something snarky. Go on. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I just, but I thought it was interesting that the, that the authors then take that and then they jump into the story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Because it's an interesting juxtaposition. Because Jesus is also putting himself face to face against the leaders of the, the, the local uh, community. But in that case, well, just look at what they say, right? They say that it, it's puzzling because we see we end up being confused when we see the Pharisees get angry that Jesus had healed somebody because usually what we assume is this is just another example of people who are really religious and they are opposed to God's grace because it didn't it didn't do religion the way that they thought it was supposed to do religion. Um, and that's kind of the assumption that we have. But the, the point that the, what the authors point out is that Jesus, at least in this instance, so this is in, in Mark 3, that Jesus heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He does it in the synagogue. He calls the man up to, to, to show that he has been healed on the Sabbath. So Jesus is making a giant display of the fact that he has healed on the Sabbath. Now, the man was not sick. He wasn't bleeding on the side of the road. He didn't have a fever. Jesus could have just, have just as easily have healed his hand 12 hours earlier or six hours later, and then it wouldn't have been on the Sabbath, and nobody in the community would have had anything bad to say about it. What they were objecting to is that Jesus was working on the Sabbath, but Jesus does it not because he's rejecting the Sabbath. Jesus does it because he is proclaiming that he's Lord of the Sabbath. 
he breaks the rule. He violates that boundary marker because he says, you don't understand who the boundary, who put the boundary markers there to begin with. He said, I put the boundary markers there. So I'll do what I want to with the boundary markers. But how easy is it, right, to, to take what we, what we assumed in Paul and jump into reading the Gospels and say, oh, well, the same thing is operating here. But in fact, it's not the same thing at all. It's not Jesus obeying the rules because he wants to remain within the community, but it's Jesus pointing out who he is and using the rules in order to, uh, to, to shine brighter light on the work that he's doing, to, to illuminate the, 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 the nature of, of who God is and what God is doing in and amongst his people. You were going to say and something? to tie in with that, I cannot for the life of me remember uh, where I heard this from. Otherwise, I would tell you. Uh, but it was talking about one of the ways that in Jesus's ministry, he was subtly proclaiming himself to be God. Mm. Uh, so not only was it this, but there was also the numerous times throughout his ministry that he would correct the teachings of Moses. Mm -hmm. And one of the conceptions in the Jewish mind is that there was no person greater than Moses. Mm -hmm. Moses was the greatest person. The only one above Moses was God. Mm -hmm. So who can correct Moses? And so when Jesus uh -huh. goes around Jesus correcting Moses, Moses, that's another boundary mm -hmm. he's He's seemingly transgressing. Mm -hmm. But instead, um, what he's doing is mm -hmm. declaring who he is. Yeah. I do want to yeah. push back a little bit on this part where it seems like they're implying that, uh, like, uh, when it talks about this, where it says, I was raised to see the objection by the Pharisees as a lack of compassion. Mm -hmm. And then they go on, and then they treat this as if lack of compassion, in fact, is not at, at play in any of it. Mm hmm I, no, um, because like Jesus goes out of his way to different Pharisees across the board mm -hmm. to you know go no your lack of compassion is part of the problem. Yeah, I think it, it's a both and not mm -hmm. an either or. Right, and because I, don't I think, I, I think lack of in... compassion is the biggest part, but it does play a part. Right. Yeah, because I think in that community there's an issue of fatalism. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you get that in, in Christianity today as well, but it's like, oh, well, you know, like when Jesus heals the blind man in the temple, the question is, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Right. Not, oh, Whatever you're, bad you're thing happened, you deserved that. Yeah. Right. Oh, your hand is withered. You deserved that. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think that there is lack of compassion. Yeah, it's like because throughout Jesus will, you know, say uh, stuff like um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It's like. You're supposed to be teachers. Don't you remember this? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is why in the very early, from the very earliest days of the church, the thing that marks them is their compassion for mm -hmm. the people who are on the margins, the orphans, the widows, the, the disabled, and hospitality. Uh -huh. Both strangers. of those things for for strangers. It's um, yeah, it's it, it's a marked difference where they say no. The thing that's different here is that God's Spirit is here mm -hmm. with us and in us, and so the way that we live together those boundary markers look different here because this is where god's spirit is yeah i just wanted to say i think this is one of those parts in the book where they make too strong of a, or at least they imply too strong of a conclusion mm -hmm. of the individualist reading as being 100 percent wrong right as opposed to just mm -hmm. maybe not the primary right exactly yeah because <laughs> because there's twofold right because there there are cultural reasons for them to assume 
that bad fortune was divine judgment. But there also are, and Jesus points this out repeatedly, there also are individual people who make those same kind of distinctions for their own betterment and their own grandeur. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, when, when Jesus corrects the Pharisee when the woman comes in and washes his feet. Um, a couple of other times as well in the Gospels where Jesus points out, no, this is a this is a you heart issue, not a y'all heart issue. This is a you heart issue. And I think that that, I, I think it's true that there, that again, there's not like, it's not fair to say that there's that, that there's this world where there's perfect collectivism and yeah. there's perfect there's there's always a bleed over. These are still individuals in a collectivist society, and we still are individuals who 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 have relationships with each other that that have boundary markers, right? I mean, you think about like in 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 our world, you know, the 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 existence of the of of a of a wedding band that you wear, like that's. That's a, a boundary marker that, that makes a relationship a communal relationship. Now, we understand these are two people, but we also understand that they're also kind of one person. And, you know, it's, you know, it's like these, it's, it's Lee and Jessica, but it's also just as fair to say the McLeods. Like you can, you know, because there's that marker. And so it's not, it's not 100% one thing yeah. or the other in, in either of those, in either of those <clears throat> cases. The last chunk of the, of, of the book, I think, ties into the first half. And again, because they've been what, what they talk about all through that is about casting off the yoke, right? That Paul, Paul undergoes the punishment that that the that the that the, um, the the synagogue inflicts because he refuses to cast off the yoke. He instead chooses to be yoked to them. Uh, that that Jesus doesn't cast off the yoke. Instead, what he's doing is is trying to bind the people closer together by healing the infirmity and saying, let me show you where the boundaries of God's grace actually are. Here, take my yoke. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus literally says to them, yeah. I want you to carry a yoke. It's just a different one. And then. yet, as like you said, <laughs> we're going, oh, cast off the yoke. Oh, that's a good thing. That's a but good thing. Jesus literally says, my yoke is life, <laughs> which means he has a yoke. Mm -hmm. Right? He has tools that he wants to give us that bind us together so that we can work correctly. <laughs> so they talk about one, one of the issues is, is there, are, there are dangers to group identities uh, because we reform our values or we redraw those boundaries and it creates problems for us. Um, and, and the example that they give initially is about uh, is about Paul and the missionary work that Paul undergoes. So they talk about the, the, the way that Paul and Peter and really the, the, the whole of the apostles were you know, talking about Acts chapter 15. The, they redraw those boundary markers to say that belonging to God is not about physical circumcision. It's about baptism. It's about spiritual circumcision. It's about where is God's spirit located and that's the boundary marker now for the community. It's not going to be a physical marking on your person. Instead, it's going to be an interior marking in your heart. The marking is going to be, this is a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so that is the new boundary marker. But there's a risk there. And you can tell that there's a risk there because there's a lot of pushback in, in really the whole of the New Testament. You hear uh, Paul and you hear Peter and you hear James and you hear the writer in Hebrews all are constantly coming back to this issue of what is it that binds us together it's not the 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 markings and it's not the observation it's the spirit of God and what does it look like for us to 
uh, to tend to the Spirit of God, to, to tune our, our hearts and our eyes to his presence in the midst of his people? Where is God's yoke drawing his people together so that they can join him in the work that he's doing already? Uh, and so they, they, they point out that, that, was the, that at that conflict, the, the core of that conflict between the circumcision and the, the, the uncircumcision crowd, the inclusion of the Gentiles uh, in, into God's people, that, that the, at the core of this is the revelation that what God has intended all along was that the nations would be gathered into the people of God. That that was always the purpose, and Paul does that by going back into the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's the foundation of what he does, is he grabs the Old Testament, he brings it forward and says, look at the places throughout the whole of Scripture that God has always been saying, I'm bringing the nations. He doesn't say the nations will become Israel, become part of Israel. Says the nations will join with Israel. Will join with Israel, right? It doesn't erase Israel's identity, and it doesn't ra- erase the, the 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 identities of the nations either. Um, exactly, that's exactly it. Well, yeah, they, 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 he does it. He does a really they they do a really fun uh, a fun look at Paul's Paul's conversion because there's there's this part of Paul's conversion I think that I skip over like when i read the story of paul's conversion i'm like and jesus showed up and it was like oh and there's lightning and he's blinded and all of these things but there's this passage that they quote here that i don't know that i've paid attention to clearly before where jesus says to paul now get up and stand on your feet i have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me i will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Like, from the very beginning, Jesus saves Paul and he says, just like you have been cast into darkness and are going to have to go and find somebody to lay hands on you and pray for you and you will receive light. Now you are going to go to the people whose eyes have been have, have been blind and you're going to lay hands on them and they're going to receive sight and they're going to receive that position that they were supposed to have all along. Now, Paul understanding that then goes on this missionary journey, right? Which is what they begin with in in the the very beginning of the chapter when they're talking about Paul's work in 1 Corinthians. And the issue in Corinthians, which I talked a little bit about on Sunday, but I... (laughs) There there are lots of people on Sunday in various age brackets, and so... (laughs) <laughs> i was like i want to make conversations like at home over lunch a, a less <laughs> less less confusing so in in the ancient world what they explain here is exactly right when when you went to the market it was part of a temple somewhere wherever you went in the world the market was part of the, it was that the way in, in jerusalem, jerusalem. Yeah. it was that way everywhere else people brought their animals the animals were blessed the animals were sacrificed a portion of that meat went to take care of the people who worked in the temple and the rest of it was sold so that people could have food and that the temple could have money you didn't have money to give to the temple the temple ran off of being really good at what they did which was slaughtering animals and having the best butchers set up their shops right alongside the outside so when paul goes into these places where there aren't jewish communities the jewish communities have their own people usually one or two of these families are butchers and they know how to do exactly what is required and they do that and they 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 make sure that all of god's laws and and precepts are being followed 
but everybody else just goes down to you know the the whatever the local temple is of of whoever it is and they just buy their food there so the temple functions like a market and a restaurant that's it for us we think of temple and we think of you know like choirs and like cathedrals and basilicas but that wasn't what there there was there was a part of it that was like that but normal people didn't go in there for anything ever they just went to the gate you made a sacrifice and then you were good and you know you, you that, that, that was fine they you know they went and bought so you going home at the end of the day would just stop by the butcher and pick up some meat and then you bring it to church that night where they've just had communion and everybody brings all of their food and they set it on the table and the bishop stands up and he gives a blessing over the bread and the wine and then he gives a blessing over the 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 oil and the and and the 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 meat and the bread and like he the the the, the eucharist extends over a giant table in in the early celebrations and you have half of the people there who are jewish and half of the people there who are who, who are non-jewish now the people who are non-jewish just bought meat on the way to church and it was already prepared because they bought it at one of the stalls that's on the street that got it but it was sacrificed to you know juno so what happens then if you bring something that's been sacrificed to juno and you lay it at the table i say this for instance because we it, it sounds really like weird and theoretical okay but let me put it into perspective when we walk into the church, the first thing that we see is a giant icon, right? That icon was not made by Christians. It was made by a really weird New Age cult that has figured out that they can make a lot of money selling icons. I didn't know that when I bought that from them. Uh, oh, you're, this isn't an example. This is No, this is like that icon of, oh. of Christ enthroned comes okay. from this... This really creepy new age group that sells icons. Uh, They make really high quality icons, uh, and they sell lots of other things along with them. They sell incense and they sell all those all those kinds of things. Now, that's the only one that I bought from them because I bought that from them, and then within a year or so found out about these other things. So I don't give money to them anymore. Yeah. But I still had to have that same conversation with my bishop, and I, I, you know, this was this was Bishop Bishop Doc you know, who's, who, who's fast and loose all the time anyway. But, but the thing that he said is he's like, he, he, he said exactly what Paul says. He's like, Lee, if this is going to be a stumbling block for you, then you should just throw it away and, and, you know, you can, you can get more stuff. But if you feel like this is simply a thing that represents God's, God's presence and you've prayed over it and it doesn't create a stumbling block in your own heart, then just embrace this and, and embrace the beauty that it represents and ignore the people that it came from. And it was exactly that kind of thing that was happening in, in, the, in, in the church. Now, obviously, there were other problems in Corinth because, <laughs> because the temple market functions like a market, right? And so there are, you know, everybody who gathered would gather there. And so, you know, while, while you guys are going into the marketplace and you're just doing what everyone else in the... Like, the, the, the problems with, with Corinth are not that... That, that somebody brought food to, tr- to the potluck that night that was sacrificed to an idol. The problem is that they, they, that they don't see a distinction between what is, what, what is holy and what is, is, is demonic, and that the lines have been blurred in the, in the Corinthian hearts. And Paul is trying to bring them back to, to open their eyes again because he loves these people. Like he's, He lived there for a year and a half. 
you know, building this congregation. And now he's heard about all of these insane things that are going on that they're, you know, that they're, they're excluding the poor people from, from the love feasts and that people are, are committing sexual immorality uh, among the church members. And then other people are off doing whatever it is that they're doing in the back corners over at the temple. And, 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 and Paul is just horrified by all of this. And he says, guys, you've, you've missed out the point. You, you've mis, you've misunderstood where the boundaries are, right? The boundaries are what, where is the Holy Spirit? So let's talk about what the Holy Spirit means when we eat. And let's talk about what the Holy Spirit means when we, when, when we gather our family together. Let's talk about what the Holy Spirit means in the marriage bed. And let's talk about what the Holy Spirit means uh, in, in your relationships with each other. Like the, but, but what he's saying again and again is the Holy Spirit is the anchor here. And so he talks about it in terms of the love feast. And he talks about it in terms of the marriage. And he talks about it in terms of the theology of the body, kind of like we, we talked about on Sunday. But all of that has to do with, don't you understand who you are, right? The common thing that Paul says over and over again in Corinthians is, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten Jesus, have you forgotten what the boundary markers are, the, the new boundary markers? And that's what he's continually calling them back, back, back to again and again. And I think that is, at least for me, why this chapter in particular, I thought was, was absolutely fantastic. In, in, um, there, there have been lots of really good pieces of the book. The, 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 the revisioning of, of the story of Joseph was, was, you know, it was a complete paradigm shift for me. But this chapter took all of those kind of various strands and it wove them together and said, look, this is why these issues are these issues. And suddenly it was like pieces of Paul that are hard to understand in our own context and perspective sort of become clearer again. And pieces of, of, of what, what's happening in the story of Acts. I'm like, oh, that's why Jesus is talking this way. That's why Saul changes his name. And that's all of these things that are happening in, in the broad story of, of the early church suddenly come into focus because all of these kind of various pieces have been, have been pulled back together and we can kind of see them all again. So next week, we're going to transition into the last section of the book is why does collectivism really matter to me, right? And so we're going to spend some time talking about, uh, about honor again and and how it relates to our family we're going to understand like what does patronage look like in in the world around us and how does that apply uh, but these these last couple of chapters are really fantastic uh because they do exactly what this chapter does where it takes those those other threads and sort of blends them together so thank you for checking out thin places today if you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more Check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.
hope with our Father is restored.